Hello and welcome, esteemed gamers, friends, listeners. It is Leighton here from Leighton Night with Brian Wecht, and I just wanted to tell you that if you're looking to get even more podcast goodness to put in your face, then we've got just the thing for you, which is the official Leighton Night Patreon. We have several tiers where you can get access to recommendation lists for every episode, listen to Patreon-exclusive mini-sodes, get into the super awesome fan Discord, and watch videos like Brian's songwriting process for jingles on the show, or me taking apart and cleaning my mechanical keyboards. It's really fun and cool, and we super appreciate your support. It's neat. We would love to see you there. Without any further ado, here's the episode. Enjoy. Love you. Bye. How are you? How's your week going? It's so middling. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Anybody who doesn't have an insane amount of gratitude about the middling to good things is like, you're an asshole. So everything's fine. You know what I mean? Just not being sick right now is like enough yeah. to be like, yes, nice. Oh, yeah. 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 Having the luxury of staying at home and doing stuff at home is like, oh, what a privilege. Yeah. Thank God. Are you in LA, Janina? I am. And you've got a, a nice, lovely house to uh, be stuck in during this time. That's right. Layton has been to my abode. And remind me, how do you, the two of you know each other? <laughs> do it, Layton. Do it. <laughs> no, Janina, you're, you're better at telling this story than I am. Okay, well, let's tell both of our perspectives. Yes. We've never done a Rashomon okay. yet on this podcast, and I'm very excited about this. I kind of feel like you should take your headphones off, Layton. Oh, I think this is great. And then I guess we just yell, and then she can kind of hear when we... You know what? L look at the chat, okay? Okay, okay. okay. <laughs> I'm super into this. Here we go. All right. Headphones off. Okay, great. So, Janina, you'll go first. Okay. It was a dark, stormy night now. <laughs> so, this was 2017. What year did Dream Daddy come out? Yeah, 2017 sounds about right. Sweet. It was like the day before Comic-Con, I think. And so mm -hmm. essentially the game had come out. I loved it. I played the whole thing. And I was driving myself down to Comic-Con and tweeted something, you know, via voice. So I don't even know how well it went. That I loved the game, mm -hmm. et cetera. And then one of their socials followed me. And I was like, oh my God, that's one of the people. And then I essentially started DMing. <laughs> I, it must have been Vernon since Layton's like, I just wandered into it. So I was like, yeah, I'm yeah. coming down. I'm going to be there for like three days. We got to find each other. That was kind of like the thing, you know? The days are going on. Right. We have not met each other because we actually have things we have to do on our schedule, et cetera. And Comic-Con is, is like, yep. you know, you do have these set things and then it just becomes parties, which is hilarious because so many people who go to Comic-Con have some semblance of social anxiety. So going to parties is like, oh, jeez, you know. Of course, yeah. And the parties vary so widely in quality, let's just say, anyway. Well, quality is, you know, that's also subjective because, yes. you know, you could have like, I had a, a fantastic four-person hang in my hotel in, you know, like for Star Wars convention. And it was so much better than any fancy EW kind of, you know, the, the EW yeah, yeah. party, this is, is the most Hollywood party at Comic-Con. 
you know? Right. So like, <laughs> I thought you were about to say I had a fantastic four party for like a fantastic four movie. <laughs> Anyway, that, that's how I read that at first. Yeah, none of the Fantastic Four were there from any right, of good. the versions, but um, it was fantastic <laughs> um, for four hours. So I don't know. Okay, so basically, uh, you know, we're out and about doing these things. And I at some point I go, gosh, you know, like if I don't try to find these people who I'm sure are very busy, then I'm never going to see them, you know? Right. So I text this random person. It's really a 50-50 shot. It's probably Vernon. Yeah. And I say, hey, I'm down to come find you in this town right now. Where are you? And he says, I'm in some hotel. I go, wait, so am I. In the same hotel. We happen to be at the same party. There are about what? 50 parties every night. Oh, my God. In the same lobby of the same hotel. So you were like... Right next to each other. Basically. We're approximately 10 feet from each other. <laughs> it was, you can't make this up. You know, you can't write it kind of thing. And then they were wonderful. And then I just sort of forced a friendship from there. That was it. That's the end of my story. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. Okay. You're going to chat, Leighton. I feel like you should hear her story. Oh, okay. Okay. Fair, fair, fair. You rang? I did. Okay. First of all, I have a question for you. You commented in the chat with something you were not supposed to be hearing. <laughs> what I thought I heard was, uh, what year was this? Ah, yes. Okay, yeah, so it was 2017. Wait, please hold. How asmr -y is this podcast? Do the listeners want to listen to me open a nitro cold brew? Oh, let's do it. Yes, yes absolutely. Okay. okay, great. So here we go, guys. Ooh. Wow. Ooh. Thrilling. Oh, crisp, amazing. Yeah, you could really hear the carbonation. Cool, cool, cool. Yes. So my context for this story is I was in art school at the time. I was living in Georgia. Uh, basically, we wrote all of Dream Daddy over Skype, while most of which while I was a full-time student. And for the last month and a half of development, I flew out to be there for crunch. And then we crunched like crazy and it was fucking hellish. Probably the most stressful thing I've ever experienced. And the game got delayed once. And then we got three more days to finish it. And then that night, we couldn't get it through on Steam. And so Vernon and I were supposed to take the train to Comic-Con the next morning to do a bunch of like panels and promotional stuff. And uh, basically, right as we we got it up 10 minutes before it was supposed to go up, and then with Steam, it wouldn't the build wouldn't go through. So we had this like unopened bottle of champagne that we were sadly drinking out of Dixie cups. <laughs> um, and we were like, oh, this is fucked. We are the laughing stock of the internet blah, 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 because it was such a huge thing and we were being screamed at by 70,000 people, etc. And so Vernon and I went back, we packed. Uh, I was crashing on his couch, we got fun, and then we watched John Carpenter's 1982 seminal classic, The Thing, and Chainsmoked. And then when I woke up the next morning, I was like, what happened? And he was like, oh, it's the number one best-selling game on Steam globally. <laughs> Which... Maybe one of the most surreal moments of my life, but then we had to immediately go on the train and then the entire train ride, we were both staring at Twitter, just like watching the reactions roll in. But it took T minus two hours to get called pedophiles. Oh, jeez. <laughs> because children talk to each other. Wait, what? <laughs> yeah. I don't even understand that. 
Yes. Well, this game is so disgusting. It promotes pedophilia. And then somebody responded like, what the, what are you, what do you mean? And they were like, uh, when your 18 year old daughter talks to the 10 year old daughter and the parents say that they should have a play date, meaning that like Amanda should babysit her. Uh, they were like, it's disgusting that like parents would try to get their, ch- I don't know. I don't remember the logic. So this was some idiot who didn't know what a play date was. Or what pedophilia is. Um, yeah. Okay. So Vernon and like our brains were melting because after crunch, like I was sick, like exhausted from like all nighters and all that stuff. And then watching like everything on my timeline being about Dream Daddy while going to Comic-Con was just like so fucking wild. Cause I thought this whole thing was done uh, the night before. So we get to Comic-Con kind of take our victory lap, our, our very dissociated <laughs> victory lap of like, what the fuck is happening right now? Uh, anyway, so there was the Boom Comics uh, party that we went to and uh, we were just hanging out and then Vernon was like, okay, so this this lady tweeted at us who's really, really cool and she wants to meet us and I think she's at this party. Um, and then somehow through some frantic tweeting, I'm sure I'm mixing up this up so we got the real Rashomon experience here. <laughs> and then you were there and you're so friendly and excited. And I was like, why is this beautiful, uh, this beautiful, friendly woman talking to us? Um, and then we went to a different party and we continued talking. And during that party was when the people data mined the game to find the cult ending. So then there was a new deluge of not getting called pedophiles this time, but getting called every single other name you could possibly imagine because people were mad. People were mad that there was a secret ending or they were mad about it promotes blah, 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 blah. Oh, Brian, Or Brian, everything. Brian. Okay, we don't have to get into this right now. But. <laughs> no, it's okay. It's just, of all the things, I think that's the one that we got the most shit for, uh, for an, an ending that you could not access uh, and was kind of meant to be a joke. And then we continued to get shit about that for three years. <laughs> we got very shortly afterwards this um, 18-page email of, quote, letter of concerns from the community <laughs> just regarding that specific ending um, being called homophobes and transphobes and how we were shit writers and bad people, etc. You know, the internet. Right. But yeah, and then we we kept in touch with uh, Janina after that. And we've had a lot of uh, really nice movie nights watching terrible movies in uh, ghost adventures and yeah yes that's awesome so i think uh those pretty much align exactly i didn't hear a big discrepancy in fact layton you went a little farther than janina (laughs) (laughs) haha got him in in terms of the like what happened after that first party i actually don't remember the second party we were in a car And I think my friend had offered me edibles and I had them. And I was like, should I take this edible? And you were like, I I respect that. (laughs) You're really really going for it. And then I didn't take it. But yeah. Yeah. So do you agree with that, Janina? That's pretty much the same story. What's great is I don't remember anything about after seeing you guys there. And like, I just remember how it felt um, and who you guys were, sort of how you felt as people. And I was like, oh, Mm. friends. Great. These are friends now. And um, I don't remember getting in a car. I don't remember you taking edibles or me supporting the idea. 
<laughs> I think you were like, wow, uh, you seemed mildly disapproving of like, oh, damn, you're really going for it. Oh, and really? I believe I said that. Oh, my God. The driver was talking about how, like, he really wanted his wife to try weed because she was super against it. But he was like, she would totally benefit from it. Like, she really looks down on, on me for it. And she, if she would just try it and chill out. That's so wow. funny. Wait, so you're saying I was I was approving or disapproving? You were mildly disapproving. Oh, funny. See, I would assume if that I would have been like, yeah, do that. i was also like i think 19 at this time and definitely uh doing a little underage drinking scamming going on there which (laughs) is like i look old and also if you go up to an open bar and confidently say i I want white wine they just give it to you at a party like come on they're they're not checking ids generally speaking right they're not also, nobody's driving in Comic-Con. Right. It's just sort of like one big, long, strange college party. It's very, very weird. It's very wild. And then was it, it was last year that you drove us to San Diego. Oh, yeah, Comic-Con. that's right. That we really all drove delightful. together. I was like, well, get fun. in my hoopty. Let's go. <laughs> it's exhausting. I'm, I'm fine if I never go again. As a kid, it was like an ultimate bucket list thing that I never thought would happen. Of like, I want to go to San Diego Comic-Con. And now I'm like, oh. I've been only twice. And once I used to live in San Diego for six years. Oh, my. Uh, Shit. Yeah, uh, like from 98 to 2004. So I went like before it was Comic-Con. Yeah. And it was so much more manageable. And then the next time I went was like, I don't know, it was like 2016 or something. And it was actually, no, it was probably 2014. Uh, And it was like a completely different animal and so overwhelming that I don't see myself ever going back unless it's for a work thing for less than a day, like you were talking about. Well, also in a post-COVID world, I mean, that's always my thing with like traveling to conventions, uh, especially GDC because gamers, but Comic-Con where it's like, I just have to know that I'm going to have to take additional days after this because I will be sick. Yeah. Yeah. It's so funny, you know, I'm getting sort of invited to conventions again. And I'm like- when. For for when? Like that's the question. Is sort of one's in July in Florida. What? I think. Ooh. Oh god. Maybe no. yeah, I don't want to say the wrong place, but you know, if people sort of figure out which one it is and go, shame, you know, I could be wrong. But it's definitely this year. It's definitely before September. And here's the thing. I have asthma. I'm not a good candidate for getting coronavirus, which affects your yeah. lungs when my lungs are already pretty sad. And yeah, I think I've made it through precisely one convention without getting sick. Mm-hmm. And I'm also one of those people that wants to reach out and touch and hug people and connect with them. So it's really hard to get through that. And you have to put yourself in convention goers' shoes. This is something that they save up for. For sure. And it's not coming back to their town for another at least year. So why would they not go? Probably with different people, right? Like so much of of going to a con is, oh, I want to see this person and that person. And it's very specific about who's there. Yeah. So you can't, you're not going to, if somebody is feeling slightly ill, they're going to take the chance and they're still going to go, which I fully understand. Um, And and also that's just like an American cultural thing. I was talking to a friend of mine who, who spent most of, well, the first half, I love how he said half as if we know that there's going to be a second <laughs> half coming. Who knows? Who knows how long yeah. this will be? But he spent sort of like March, April, and 
the beginning of this month um, in Sweden. Oh, wow. Okay. And because his, his wife is Swedish and he's fancy and got on someone's private jet and flew to Sweden. So those borders are open, apparently. So he spent most of it there and we had a meeting on the book. So I kind of like did a quick check-in. And I was saying, well, Sweden didn't close, as we know. And how shall they fare? And he was like, well, it's also sort of in Swedish culture to stay the fuck home if you don't feel good. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know? Yeah. He was like, you can't buy over-the-counter cold meds in Sweden. Really? And he's like, yeah, you can't just buy Dayquil or NyQuil. So you don't just pop a Dayquil and go to work in Sweden. You stay the fuck home, you work from home, and they pay you. Right. (laughs) Yeah. That's wild. So things just get contained faster because that is the supported behavior in the culture. I think I was just seeing a thing now, though, that their numbers are are not good, at least compared to the rest of Europe. But I don't remember exactly, because they did exactly what you said. They didn't shut down in the same way that basically everywhere else did. That's the thing about a pandemic, y'all. Yeah. <laughs> it's a little different than just like a regular cold situation. But that's probably knowing that that's in the culture of the country. That's probably why they thought they didn't have to shut down because they assumed that everybody would comply and everybody would just kind of like be good. Yeah. That's wild. Oh, that's such a generous assumption about humans. <laughs> I, um, yes. <laughs> yes. Piggybacking on the convention story, I have a story that was like the inverse of that situation where the Comic-Con that you drove me to, and I think we talked about this on the write-up, because you were trying to meet Zach Baggins. (laughs) And I did! I know, so delightful. Who? I don't know this name. He's about to be your favorite person. Ghost Adventures Man. Oh, sorry, yes. (laughs) Yeah, he's Ghost Adventures Man who got spooked so hard by a demon that he had to start wearing like special diamond glasses. Gotcha. Cool. So you'd love him. He's very up your alley, Brian, specifically. Nice. (laughs) Anyway, so that was delightful. I I loved watching that saga with Janina. But uh, Vernon and I going to Comic-Con, we had tickets for uh, the last podcast on the left live show. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Prior to that, Henry Zabrowski followed me on Instagram and would like my stuff because his sister really loved Dream Daddy. Um, And we were like, literally, the only thing I want to do this trip is meet Henry Zabrowski. I don't give a fuck what, what else happens here. No, we were basically talking about our goals. Yeah, our goals for this Comic-Con. <laughs> and so we had a Dream Daddy comic book signing because this was right after it came out at the Oni Press booth. And we were doing that. And I was looking down at my phone. And then all of a sudden I hear like a very sheepish like, hey, just wanted to say like I really, my sister and I really love you guys' game. And I looked up and it was Henry. And I just like... Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> we were expecting to be the ones sheepishly approaching him. And he was the one doing it for us. And like there was a line of people. And we were both like, oh, hey, man, we love your podcasts like this is really cool and he hung out for a little bit while we signed stuff and we were just talking and uh he laughed at my jokes like a generous man and then after he left like everybody in line was like who was that and i was like i'm so fucking starstruck right now man like i can't handle this is crazy this is like all i ever wanted um but he got us on the list for like their second show and we were just like DMing and stuff. So uh, we kind of fell off talking and now I'm like, oh, you watch all my Instagram stories. Let's fucking hang out, mm. dude. Was that 2019? Yeah, that was 2019. There's no better feeling than when you approach someone you're a fan of. It ends up they're a fan of you and you're like, whoa, what? Yeah. Mm-hmm. That, it, it just feels so crazy. I had one like that at Comic-Con. This guy, I really love, R. Stevens, who does this webcomic Diesel Sweeties. Yeah, yeah, Diesel Sweeties. Yeah, the best. So we'd like been following each other on Twitter and I kind of saw he was going to be there. 
And I just walked up and I was like, I didn't know what he even looked like. I just said hi. And he was like, oh, well, you know, we had this like mutual appreciation society thing. And since then, I've never met in person except for that one time, but have just been, you know, kind of following each other and are very simpatico in, in a lot of ways. And that was, I was just like, this guy who's a webcomic I've been following for years. I mean, thing is like 20 years old at this point or something. Yeah. And I just love it. So I, I, I love it when that happens. I mean, he's so fucking sweet. I think he started, I was posting a lot of comics when I was like just about to get into college and he followed me around then. And we've just been like mutual since then. He's a, he's a sweetie. And it's really interesting to me because like, the specific font and style of the speech bubbles in his comic was sort of like co-opted by Tumblr in a way where for a really long time, it was like the default aesthetic shit post of just <sighs> putting it in that exact format. And I was like, that is the strangest origin for this weird Tumblr aesthetic thing. Yeah. I've had merch of his for legitimately 15 years. Like I have a t-shirt from 15 years ago. It's like an eight bit heart that <laughs> I, I wear all the time. And it is, it's just one of my favorite things. I love his aesthetic. I love his sense of humor. I think he's super funny. Yeah, it's pretty great. Uh, this is probably a good place to introduce everybody. Yeah. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Late Night. Um, other voice is Brian Wecht. What's up? Uh, the person who just talked is Leighton Gray. And mystery guest, would you care to introduce yourself? Is it time to reveal the answer to the mystery? Let's uh, pull back the curtain. Yeah, it's me, guys. It's Janina. Hi. What might listeners know you from? What do you oh, do? Oh, God. That's gross. <laughs> making, making the people do it is <laughs> the thing that we always do. But when people do that to me, I fucking hate it because I'm always like, I don't know. I'm a fucking idiot. I write stuff, I guess. People know me because sometimes um, as an actor... It's in stuff, movies and TV, and and when I'm lucky, video games. And other than that, I write and direct, and I make things. There you go. Let's move on <laughs> immediately. I make things is a very good thing, and uh, worth noting is uh, Janina and her creative partner Russo made a really, really incredible short body horror film called Stucco, which it's available on net online now, right? Yeah, it's in all the places. It's very cool. easily go look it up. Googleable, which was also a South by Southwest grand jury selection. Is yeah. that correct? Oh, yeah, wow. it's wild. Yeah, we won a special award for creature design, which is hilarious. Because I was like, wait, 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 are they like trolling us? Because we didn't win like a best short. They made up a category for us. Oh, that's cool. The Bone Throne earned it. Yes, thank you, thank you. <laughs> It just sort of feels like, is this a consolation prize or the fucking coolest thing that could happen? I'm pretty sure that's the fucking coolest thing that could possibly happen. It just shows you how much self-doubt, like constant self-doubt, like the thing that we wanted the most and never thought we would get is any recognition by South by. And then I still question constantly. Like, yeah. I don't know. I feel like they're trolling us. Is this something you wrote, directed, acted? Like, what's, what was your involvement in the Yeah. In the so, um, Russo Schelling is my creative partner. We wrote and directed it together. And then I produced and acted in it as well. Awesome. It's fucking incredible. Everybody, I, I talk about horror on this podcast so much, but you guys, like, uh, you invited me to a screening and immediately I was like, have you guys seen Possession 1981? And they were like, yeah, this is... This is uh, <laughs> <laughs> Big deal here, but um, I was going to ask or say, Janina, you are one of the most like many hats, creatively talented, hardworking people I've ever met. You had a long, illustrious music career. You're like an incredible visual artist. Like, thanks, dude. You acting, you do all this smart shit. Like, I I'm really in awe of you. And it's, I guess, 
I think this is the thing that we hit. We especially hit this in the last episode, but the imposter syndrome with creatives is so strong. Like there's no... Oh, it's never ending. Never ending. Never stops. And you look at other people and you're like, you're not an imposter? Like, come on. (laughs) But the moment that you look at yourself, it's just like, no, I'm shit. Everyone's going to find out I'm shit. I fully believe that anyone who does not suffer from some form of imposter syndrome is an asshole. Yes. And it's almost the definition of asshole. Yeah, I look at people who are just absolute shit at their jobs and they're so confident about yeah. it. And then everyone who's just like insane talented hates themselves. Like, it's such a bummer. Yeah, I mean, part of that is like, you know, it's like, oh, I've got a healthy amount of self-hate. What does that even mean, you know? But um, I think we all kind of know that it's like growth, growth, growth. The obsession with growth is, at least from the outside, is part of greatness, you know? So I want to get as close to good as possible and make it better than the last thing. So it's just, so that's definitely part of the sad, you know, part of the thing, part of the thing. Janina, would you consider yourself a perfectionist in any way? No, I actually don't think I'm a perfectionist. I am a finisher. So I'm more obsessed with finishing a thing than, you know, like people have said so many times, you know, done is better than perfect. So I don't think I'm a perfectionist, but I do have a bar, you know, I have a bar of like what I think is good. And I don't even think that's even tremendously unreachable. I think that you know, I look around and I go, well, this is an acceptable bar by other people and I'm going to reach that and that's it. And that bar is considered great by most people, then fine, I don't care. That's what is fine with me, you know? That is 100% how I operate, 100%. It's like, I, I am definitely not a perfectionist. The only, well, the only time I was a quote-unquote perfectionist was when I was a scientist. So I don't know, Jeannie, if you know anything about me, but I used to be a, uh, mm-hmm. a physics professor. And when you're writing a physics paper, it better fucking be right. Yeah. So you have to like go crazy and like really, really check every, you know, dot every I, I mean, like the square root of negative one I and, uh, and, you know, just check all the signs and everything and make sure it's right. But when it comes to artistic stuff, absolutely. It's just like get over some bar of acceptability and then finish it, put it out and move on to the, to the next thing. I often at least when it comes to myself, I don't know if other people feel this way. I'm curious if you two do. Uh, I feel like I am not talented. I just have pretty good taste. And when it comes to... Oh, absolutely. I, I feel that. When it comes to the stuff I do, I'm like, well, I don't think this was like particularly amazing that I did it, I mean. But I feel like it's good. Yeah, I would say that I have like fair objectivity. I'm not some dreamer. I'm actually like, no, this is a tangible thing that I can put into the world and it's going to be objectively good. And then if you think it's great, then that's on you. (laughs) You Do you set a timeline, Janina, for yourself? Do you like, I'm going to do this thing by this date? Do you like hit, try to hit goals like that? Or are you more fluid? I'm much more fluid. Somebody asked me yesterday, like she's getting a group of people together to make vision boards. And I was like, I don't think I can do that. (laughs) You know, life is very project-based for me. So um, if I hit go on a project, then it sort of gets a, it needs to be done by this time kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Quite honestly, you're asking me questions that I feel that Russo could answer better. (laughs) (laughs) Isn't that always a creative partnership? (laughs) Yes. He'd be like, guys, this is what's real. This is how she works. Let me just tell you. (laughs) Uh, Let me give you the real, let me spill the tea. But yeah, you know, I have like an overarching kind of like, Matt trying to win. 
okay? That looks like this. That means this number in the bank. That means this many projects done in a year. That means this many awards. By the time I die, like, I have a thing. Like, that's definitely, like, an engine in me. But the arts is not a world that is based on any kind of meritocracy. So you just kind of... I think it's more that we're searching for opportunities so often um, because Mm -hmm. other people have to tell us when we can do things as artists, um, unfortunately. I mean, listen, that was not the case with Stucco. Well, the truth is we won a thing and Zeiss funded part of it and also gave us access to gear. So the second that they said, yes, we'll do that, then I suddenly had the balls to add in, I mean, like, three times more of my own money, right? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's a funny thing. It's like all these things cost so much money to be able to do them on the level of other people that you're at the mercy of that, unfortunately, and you're just sort of always seeking opportunities. That's why, you know, anybody who's actually made anything and is, is truly in the business as opposed to just commenting on the business that they are just a consumer of constantly, they understand that even getting something greenlit is such a giant thing. Huge. Yeah. It's it's hurdles upon hurdles to even get to the creative part of it. Oh, yeah. And it, whenever people sit back having not made anything, like, oh, why didn't they just do this? And it's like, you are missing out on the hundreds of emails and work and money and organization here. Like, there's so much more than you think is happening. We talked about this last episode. People outside entertainment or at least like, you know, studio entertainment, do not realize how many fucking people are involved in these projects. And every time they say, why don't you just do this? What they don't realize is the 40 people it had to go through to get to be what it is or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. And that's fine. I don't, I don't hold that against them. It's just perspective, but also, you know, I enjoy every part of the process is the truth. I don't just enjoy, I mean, even just sitting there on the the panel that would never end. Remember Leighton that you came to, it was like Russo and I were dying in those director's chairs after that screening. Cause it was like, this panel's never going to end. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I was fascinated watching that panel. It was, uh, we were going to die. It, it very much cemented the like, oh, Vernon and I are the dollar store version of Janina and Russo. <laughs> Why do you say that? Making a game is a hundred times harder than making any kind of film experience. So you just can't, like, that is not, we don't agree. All right. Fine, fine, fine. It's sort of looping back around to the perfectionism question. It's really interesting to me because I feel like every time I ask that question to people who are really successful, it's always that I want to get it done, not the perfectionism, which is like, right. I've been a hardcore perfectionist my entire life, but it's like solely a fucking trauma response. Mm. <laughs> and so it's just like, if this isn't perfect, I'm going to be punished. By who? Myself, other people, who who knows, uh, cosmically. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's I remember thinking that way. It, it, it's sort of about a different thing. Turn it around to science for a second. But I remember when I was in college, so maybe when I was like 19 or something, being like, I'm all about math. I don't really care about physics. Physics is all like approximations and trying to get, you know, some close to reality, but you never really know exactly, like you can't get the exact right answer. And... Then as I kind of matured a little bit and learned more math, I was like, oh shit, getting the exact right answer and doing it rigorously is hard as fuck. So, mm-hmm. and that's a great way. I mean, lots of mathematicians do math stuff all the time you know, and then they're proving theorems and whatever. But I was just like, oh, I found the joy of a good approximation. 
if that makes any sense. Mm. Yeah, for sure. About being able to say that this is like, this is a really interesting thing. It's generally this gets close to some larger reality. And maybe I'm not going to be able to, I'll say some technical thing, solve the Navier-Stokes equation. Exactly. By the way, this is a million dollar problem if you can do it. Uh, but <laughs> I can make some, you know, uh, approximation that gets it the particulars of some interesting situation. So for me, and I don't want to uh, denigrate anyone who's just into, you know, exact solutions and pure math, but it's fucking hard. And giving that up for me anyway, was a sign of maturity. I, I agree. And it's my hope in bringing this up that like I grow out of it eventually. And I think I will. Um, but it just reminds me of like, I have to keep drilling into myself. Like when you take an oil painting class or whatever, like to get the grade, it's not about being done. It's about getting it resolved. Yes. Mm. Um, so it's like, okay, this is as resolved as it's going to be, because if you get infinite time to work on a project, it's never going to be done. If we're saying that, you know, growth is key and is actually the thing, then we must zoom out and think about the body of work that we're leaving behind when we die. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. that means that if the people that you respect also understand that growth is truly the most important thing, then you have to finish it to continue to grow. Mm -hmm. You know, you have yeah. to, yeah. like, like um, you know, I want to be able to look back at everything and see a graph of, of growth, <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and that means that there has to be various blips that you're tracking to be able to make a graph and grow from it. I think when you make something, I always have to have like too many irons in the fire because like being able to, like I can't work on one thing at once because I get so burned out on it. So instead I overload myself and work on six things at once. But it's like, once you get mildly uh, burned out on one thing, it's like so easy for me to, at least to, um, shift gears to another one that like engages you creatively or emotionally or just even, you know, switching between an art thing and a writing thing and an administrative thing and game thing or whatever else. Like it's, it's nice to be able to do that. And it being like interdisciplinary about that really brings stuff to the other projects. And at the same time, every time you complete a project and you get like all those thematic ideas that you want to get out of the way in that, it almost always you know, your taste in a thing morphs. Like once you give birth to that idea, you're immediately like, okay, I'm, I'm conceiving this again. There's a different thing now yeah. that I'm more interested in because the time that it takes to get a project from start to finish, like regardless, creative stuff aside, like you are a different person. Yeah. Well, one thing I, I feel like people maybe who aren't doing this kind of stuff for a living don't understand is that it's, it's like all about side hustles. And yet, at the same time, you have to be able to devote yourself entirely to one thing. To whatever that hustle is, yes. Yeah. And so you have these, like, 20 different possibilities kind of all going on at the same time that require your undivided attention for shorter periods of time. It becomes energy management. I was just reading about this thing. I think it's called the Pomodoro Technique. Have you guys heard of this? Yep. Yeah. yeah. I'd never heard this before. I just, literally two days ago. And I was like, wow, that's a cool thing. It feels like Cornell notes, except with time. Yeah. <laughs> I, I have to do it. I literally have to do it or else I won't get anything done. Can you explain what it is, Leighton? Because I... I don't understand it very well. So the Pomodoro technique is you get a timer. It's named after, you know, the little tomato timers. Um, so you set, I, I do it for longer periods, but I think traditionally it's, you do sets of work for 45 minutes, take a five minute break, work for 45 minutes, take a five minute break. And then like, once you get to a certain point, you could take a half an hour break or whatever. Mm -hmm. I usually do like 
45 is too short for me. So I might do like an hour and then 15 minutes is a break, whatever you can do, whatever you want. But it's a great way of like, okay, I will save the distracting stuff for that five minutes or 10 minutes or whatever the hell. But in this time I am solely focused on this one thing because with so much stuff going on, it kind of eliminates the multitasking thing. And so you can kind of, um, budget your time a lot better, but I have a Chrome extension called block site that I really like. Oh, nice. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So you can use it with the work mode. And when you're in work mode, you can have like the blacklist of stuff that you can't look at. And then when you go to click on it, it'll give you like a, what the fuck are you doing? Uh, kind of message, but it, <sighs> it's really useful because I, I don't even think about how often I'll like zone out for a moment and then compulsively check Twitter or Reddit or whatever the hell else. Right. Mm. Uh, so yeah, I, I highly recommend if people, especially if you have difficulty focusing with everything that's happening right now, it's pretty good to be like, okay, this time is for this and it's mm-hmm. solely for this. And I will not think about anything else. I will just do this. It becomes a very trackable. Cause if I, I always get to the end of the day after doing a ton of shit and I was like, I didn't do shit today, but it, it becomes like, okay, I can tangibly say that I spent five hours working on this, three hours working on this and like, that's it. I, I feel like anyone who can do this right now does not have a young child at home. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. That's the, you know, the the default, like anything could happen at any time card for us. I have a you know six-year-old and if she needs help because she, you know, either just needs it or she injured herself or something, then too bad. Like that's going to get interrupted and I got to go help or my wife has to go help. So I would love to try this and I feel, because I, as I said, I'd never even heard about this until very, very recently, but I don't even know how to accomplish that with a agent of chaos. I had a friend say to me, sort of this like very high compliment that you just said, Leighton, which was like, you do so many things. And I was like, yeah, but I also didn't make a life and I'm not growing a human. So I don't have an excuse, <laughs> homie. Like this dude has two children. You don't, there's no comparison here, dude. But the thing that you were saying earlier, Leighton, about this like this interdisciplinary mode or, mm-hmm. you know, is truly the way through it for me. Um, you both kind of said, you know, um, touched on this in that we live in a world of art and industry. If you want to be able to be a working artist, you got to be able to to do both and at least understand both or stomach the industry part enough, whatever. <laughs> but if but if you have a hard time with the industry, then that means you better have a, a good representative who is handling it for you. And yep. that is hard, et cetera. Very hard. So I try to treat the industry as a study so I can kind of like respect it and understand how it works. But then that yeah. means, fine, you have to now stomach the art of it. And um, sometimes that art becomes work. That is the part yeah. you have to stomach is that like, it is now work. It feels worky. So the thing that felt like your baby and was warm and fuzzy and felt like it was of you is now no longer of you. 3% of it is no longer of you because you just had to take studio notes. Yeah. Okay. So yeah. that means, you know, and by the way, they could be great studio notes. It doesn't matter. It is now work. And um, then that starts happening. And then one of the ways that I start dealing with like losing that 3% is I paint something. So I go and I paint a thing. That thing is 100% not work. And then I go and I 
play a piano piece or relearn a piece and I'm terrible. So then I have to spend three hours relearning a piece and I become less terrible by the end of the three hours. And hey, guess what? This proves that if you apply yourself to something, you can actually live in the suck and then after a while, it gets better. (laughs) Now I have proven to myself just sit down, do a thing, practice. You can call it yoga practice. You get whatever. You're gonna things are gonna suck, and then they're gonna get better by the time you're done practicing. Again, you can say like, yes, these are all arts forms, or they are within the arts, um, but they all inform each other so very much that it's like feed, 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 feed. <laughs> you know, Janina, how, how much like? business side of stuff? Do you feel like you had to learn? Uh, Did you learn, you know, I personally, I am in a band, so I'm running my own business like Mm -hmm. constantly. Uh, And we have a manager who helps us with that, you know, if an accountant and and that sort of stuff, but I really am a small business owner. So I'm curious for you with, with any of the stuff you do, like how much business stuff have you taken on versus just been like, you know what, I'm just gonna get someone else to do this. No, I've taken on a lot of it. At this point, I've taken on a lot, a lot. Did you have any training in that or anything? Or was it all just like pick it up as you go? it's just stuff you learn, you know? Yeah, same. First of all, I've been really, really lucky. I've had a pretty fantastic career thus far. And I've been surrounded by really respectable, brilliant people who have been really open to the millions of questions that I'm constantly asking them. So most of it comes from a place of curiosity, Right. So it's just sort of like, how does this very strange mechanism work? How does this, if the industry is a clock, look at all those weird cogs, you know? Yeah. (laughs) And those cogs are humans. So part of this is different. There is no one rule that, that, um, for any part of the industry, every single movie is put together in a different way. I mean, like the studio world versus the indie world is so very different. And that's fascinating. You can just continue to learn. So that's part of it is just like curiosity. But I will say that. It's very hard for me to be motivated to fight for myself. Oh yeah. Right? So like I can't I can't ask for anything for myself. I I have to have somebody do that for me. And that's why you have representatives. Like they that they're very good at that. Yeah. Yes, but what's very strange is you know, the second I met Russo, which was five and a half years ago, six years ago now, who knows? And I realized, "Oh my god, I met the my partner." holy cow, this is the guy. This is who knew it was going to be a guy, who knew it was going to be this guy, you know? I wasn't even really looking for a partner, but once I sort of realized that, I suddenly have this fire to fight for him Mm -hmm. because he deserves it, Mm -hmm. which is, this is all ridiculous. I should be able to say all these things for myself, but I cannot for some reason. It's hard. It's really hard. It's very hard. It's like self-hating under self-hate. Like, what the... But yeah, that really changed it for me. The second that I saw somebody talented that I wanted to fight for, everything changed. Hmm. I started looking at him like I'm his rep. Oh, nice. Yeah. Like I fully negotiated a deal for us. And I forgot to even mention it to my manager until it got greenlit. (laughs) This was recently. I bet your manager loved that. Yeah. Well, she was just like, what? This is great. And it was a good <laughs> deal. Awesome. She's German and I can't do a German accent. <laughs> I get shit from my manager all the time about doing stuff like, why the fuck wasn't that in the loop about this thing? This is like, you're talking to execs and you haven't looped me. Like, come come the fuck on. I get shit all the time for forgetting to loop in my <laughs> Is this rep. Brent? Yeah, it's Brent. <laughs> 
I can hear that in his voice. I, I have a, I have a very, very, very hard time speaking up for myself and fighting for stuff that I want just because I don't want to put anybody out and I don't want to be like too unreasonable about stuff. And I always feel like anytime I stand up for myself, it's like, well, I don't really need it. Not Not everybody is like that. And it's not like, you know, perfectly wonderful kind people are able to advocate for themselves, but it's just, it's some kind of personality thing that it seems like we both share where it's just, oh, every time I start to say, actually, I'd like it this way, I kind of freeze up and then more often than not, don't do it. But by the same token, every time I do do it, the other person's like, yeah, uh, sure. Why not? That's great. I'm glad you said something. And I'm like, fuck, why didn't I do that more often? And then when the next one <laughs> yeah. comes around, it's exactly the same thing where it's like, oh, I guess I won't do it. But it almost always works out. At least for me, there's the fear of, you know, you end up knowing and encountering so many assholes in the industry who are constantly pushing and demanding and will like step on other people to get whatever they want. And it's like, oh, I never want to be that guy. But yes. then that turns into voicing your your concerns or opinions or desires becomes just like completely taboo for fear of becoming an asshole or putting somebody out. Like, I swear, if somebody stabbed me, I would be like, oh, I'm so sorry. I'm getting blood everywhere. Uh, yes. <laughs> shit. I'm, I'm so sorry. We kind of hit on it briefly before, but I was going to ask both of you, to what extent are your creative endeavors, like self-driven ones, inspired by self-challenges? So in my case, almost Everything I do is because at some level, I'm like, you know what? I think that's going to be hard. Let me try to do something hard but achievable. So I'm curious if that's the case for either of, of you. I think uh, for me, it's always if, if I have an idea for something and then I'm like, I don't know how the fuck to do this, I, that, that feels good to me, especially because anything that forces you to seek out other people who you trust to help you know how to do the thing, which is sort of like the power of having a creative right. partner, uh, especially one that you really, really gel with of just being like, I want this. I don't know how to do this, especially because I think you need to have sort of the right balance of being very simpatico, but also having very different experiences and backgrounds and perspectives to bring to it is like a very special thing. And so having a challenge like that brings in the inherently collaborative nature of stuff because I I get very like, ah, I want to do everything myself. Um, but that's that's not actually good for a project most of the time. Most of the time, yeah. I don't like doing something if I've seen it before. Mm -hmm. mm. So that's definitely like, oh, I've seen that. Or someone else is doing that, let them do that, right? So there's a newness factor that is very exciting yep. to me. I'm not really attracted to something in, unless it makes me uncomfortable. Yes, exactly, exactly. Yeah. Not just as an artist, but also if something isn't innately subversive, then I'm sort of, you know, in that same way where it's like you're either making art or you're making propaganda, you know? Sounds very loaded, but it's true. It is kind of true, yeah. Yeah, I think people get so hung up on like the, you know, there are no original ideas. You're always riffing on stuff, which is why the subversion is important. And that's sort of been, especially my and Vernon's approach to stuff, which is like, with Dream Daddy, it was like, okay, so there's a lot of blank space on this board for dating sims. Here are all the things that they do that are tropey and frustrating. How do we take all of those, set up an expectation, and then subvert it? It's about finding what people haven't done. And if you if you do that, if you have the special twist on what you're doing and not in a Ryan Johnson shithead, like, I'm going to do what the audience doesn't expect just to shock them. Like, I don't fucking care, man. But there's also something in like, in the knowing that even, you know, if you are a person who has been marginalized, 
um, or if you are not, if your voice is not really represented or hasn't yet, every day that you walk out of the house with confidence, you are subversive. <laughs> yeah, totally. You know, and this is the, the weird thing about being an Indian person. It's like, I'm a minority here, but I'm the fucking majority. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right? Totally. So my whole life, I've always had this thing in me, I believe. And again, this isn't about me. It is about us, right? Um, the us. I'm, I am propelled forward by an us, not by a me, right? People would sort of literally marginalize me. And I would sort of go, all right. Okay. Mm-hmm. We are legion. You know, like, yeah. <laughs> I would sort of always feel that there was something bigger than me that I was a part of, you know, have a sort of quiet confidence about that, which was like, it's fine if you cast me aside in this lifetime. There's only so long that you can do that. Yeah. Because I see infinite lifetimes ahead of me that it doesn't mean that I, I, I'm going to live them, but there will be generations upon generations. And the paradigm that you are pushing forward as the way right now is a joke in terms of, you know, human history until we all kill ourselves. So, (laughs) you know, on this planet by ruining our planet. So I don't know. I just like have truly always felt that. I remember thinking that when I was 10, if you need to tell yourself that your position of power is powerful, okay, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I see way past you. And it's not like my parents were like, we are legion. Like, they didn't put this in my head. <laughs> I honestly don't know I, where I got this idea, but it, it's yeah. truly helped me have, like, a quiet confidence about the us of the planet, you know? You inherently have such fire. It feels like it must come from that a little bit, right? It has to. And this is where intersectionality is so important, like really combining forces, if you will, because there are more other than there are not. So if we all just actually band together, then we can outnumber the current reigning voice. Did you grow up with a large Indian community around you or were you pretty isolated? No, that's what's so weird. I don't know how I got any of this stuff. Um, Maybe it's just survival, you know? The thing I was laughing about earlier was this, like, marginalization thing. Uh, Now that everything is on a streaming service, you know, you turn on your TV, if you turn on, let's say, Netflix or Amazon or Hulu or truly anything, the graphics take over the entire screen, right? So you see a, a cast of people and then that that photo changes and it's like the ensemble cast, right? How many movies and television shows have ensemble cast? Here they are, everyone. It's a big graphic. And anybody who's listening who doesn't understand like marginalization, you can really see it in these graphics because the person of color or the other, the queer, the disabled, and anybody who is other is the cast member who was in the margin. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, totally. Just literally marginalizing. The leftmost or the rightmost character who's just like off to the side. You know, some of these, if they don't have their aspect ratio right on their on their television or on their screen, that person's going to get cut out. Yeah. You can't even see it. Yeah. It's really funny. Of course, that's changing. It can't just happen on screen. It has to happen in who's making these things, mm-hmm. who's telling these stories. So, For sure. you know, that's one thing I get. I get asked all, I get asked questions all the time as from an actor's perspective, like, well, how do we do you know, representation? I'm like, this cannot just be on screen, you guys. 
Right. Because yeah. like, because the thing is, then you're saying that people who have not lived these stories are telling these stories. So how can they be told with the most authenticity if there is nobody in this writer's room, nobody who's producing this, nobody who's costuming this character, who knows anything about this walk of life? The thing that's funny about these streaming services is that you can see the change. So as they go by, you can say, oh, this is, you, this is definitely from the 90s. One person here that is not just exactly what Hollywood's always looked like. You know, oh, this one's definitely from the early 2000s because, you know, the cast looks like this, right? Yeah. It's just one of those funny things where you can see the change happening. It seems like things are moving in the right direction. I mean, it never feels fast enough, but it it, it does seem like things are getting better, at least generally speaking. Ideally, you snap your fingers and everything's just great tomorrow. It's never going to happen. But I, I am optimistic as well. It feels like things are moving in the right direction, albeit in fits and starts. What I'm curious about here, and this is something that I see a lot in my own artistic life, is because, you know, I'm a YouTuber and I'm making music videos on YouTube, our, our budgets are nothing. I mean, they're, you know, kind of a lot to us, but in, you know, the grand scheme of things, they're pretty small. We can do whatever we want. We have complete creative freedom. So I'm curious if you think that this progress is driven by the fact that budgets in general are, except for a very small number of films, TV shows, whatever, are getting smaller. And there's creative freedom that allows better representation and diversity with those smaller budgets. So do do you think that's the case? Do you think that's progress? Like, what's your take on that? Yeah. So I mean, it's pretty generally the case where it's like the smaller the budget, the more creative control. The bigger the budget, the more homogenized the story and um, just the more people have at stake. So they just sort of take the art out of it is the truth. Yeah. But the cool thing is that, you know, the generation of content creators that have the opportunity to make things because of prosumer technology is affecting the data that is shown to studios and that is exciting, right? So like if you suddenly have a bunch of, of voices that are making content that have found an audience, then that data gets, goes into some, you know, invisible machine in the sky that then crunches numbers that is given to studios, quote unquote, Hollywood. And they say, this is bankable, basically. So, um, in that voice. Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly what the, the, it's like the, just this silent, weird calculator in the sky that everybody knows about, you know, like Netflix has this calculator that is actually a thing that people talk about some AI calculator that goes, okay, we have this writer and this director and these actors, and we crunch up these numbers, and that means that the budget for this movie should be $25,400,011.32. That is what you get. You do not get to go a penny over. And that number is based on the data of those people's past performances, meaning how their box office has performed, in their entirety of their career. Just to explain this a little to our audience, who probably most of whom aren't, you know, in in, in the industry, the big question for something like a, a Netflix or any streaming service is they can't point to a box office 
number and say, okay, well, we spent 20 million on this movie and it made 65 million or whatever, right? They have to somehow figure out how much they're gonna spend without seeing that that direct like ticket sales box office number. And so that's the, the problem that Netflix and others are trying to solve with these calculators where they input all the data that Janino was talking about and just come out with some number. I mean, it's 2020, everything is a data science problem now. And that is what Netflix has famously, at least in the entertainment industry done, is figured out how to translate, you know, whatever money they can spend to, to actual budgets. But this is where it's a problem because all of that data is based on the past. So, right. you know, if you look at Tom Cruise, he has 40 years of winning. But how do you, but then if you look at, you know, like yeah. it becomes, it's like a data bias. It's like the list perpetuates itself. You say any of the Chris's or any of the Ryan's that are on this A-list are <laughs> bankable people, but then the, any kind of $100 million project is only going to go to the Chris's and Ryan's. Yeah. And then nobody else gets a shot. And there is no middle. I did a smaller budget movie. It was still probably $25 million. I have no idea what the budget was. But, you know, I, I was in this movie. It's, please watch it. It's available now on all the things. Um, it's like, the. it was truly the most intense artistic experience of my career thus far. It's called The Way Back. Gavin O'Connor directed it. He made The Warrior and The Accountant. Ben Affleck is the lead. I'm the female lead in this thing. And the only reason I had a shot is because they didn't have enough money to get anybody else very famous. <laughs> <laughs> it's got to be kind of gratifying to know that you're the most famous and capable person they could get given their budget, right? Because yeah. that's kind of how they see these things, right? It's like, who's the top, top, top we can get for what we can spend? Who is the cheapest Best. person? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Cheapest yeah. slash best. Yeah. Yeah. I hope that doesn't feel insulting that I, I it said It doesn't that. because okay. I'm fine with it. You know, <laughs> like I'm, I'm obviously fine with it because, you know, I'm still working. I haven't like folded in on myself. The other thing is, and I think Leighton and I have talked about this before, which is like, I'm not famous. I'm just known. I just work a lot. It's it's like a pocket famous, like a, a, a bubble of fame where it's like not much outside of that, but within that. Yeah. But even that it's like the second anybody knows my last name, then you know that I'm maybe getting some notoriety, but nobody knows my last name. They just know me as the girl from the stuff. And yeah. I'm a, I'm not a dummy. So if I wanted to be famous, I would have figured out how to get famous. You know, it's clearly, <laughs> it's not an authentic want for me. Yeah. Um, I have wanted it sometimes be like, damn it, you know how much stuff I could get done if I could just get famous? But like, I can't get stuff done that I don't want to get done. And I clearly don't want to be famous. Yeah, <laughs> it, it, it's a priority. Yeah. Thing. yeah. Yeah. It's not a priority. You know, I, I don't think it's illegitimate to just want to be famous, but it, it is so much more interesting when you know, like you said, like there are people who want to be famous as a means to an end. Like if I get famous, then I can get the money to do this other shit that I want to do. And by the way, I'm seeing that being used for good now. So yes. Uh, yes. one of the projects that I work on is uh, an Apple TV plus show called The Morning Show. Um, two of the executive producers are Jennifer Aniston and Reese Witherspoon. They have been A-list stars for decades. And even they 
had, you know, Jen told this story that was like seven years ago, people were like, oh, you want to produce? Cute. <laughs> like she's Jen- <laughs> she's Jennifer Aniston. She's been a megastar for, oh, you're just going to pat her on the head and say that's a cute idea. Cool, 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 cool. Yeah. And, you know, now it's a giant show and it's the flagship show of an entire network. And, you know, we were nominated for best show, Golden Globe, blah, blah, blah. The point is they did it. And Reese has proven herself to, you know, she's got such great taste as a producer. She's been producing for years, but they're using their their fame to be able to get something greenlit, you know? And yeah. um, that's what it takes, you know? I don't have that luxury. So I'm sort of trying to figure out how I'm going to get anything made in the future. How am I going to do that? If I can't, if I don't have the fame, I have no idea. You still have to, just like everybody else, muster the courage to continue. Yeah, and keep keep plugging away and not letting anything stop you, including yourself. Like, I see so many creatives who just, like, shoot themselves in both feet by being like, oh, well, I'm not good enough or I can't get this or it's I'm not getting, like, the immediate validation or success. And it's like you cannot let failing sideways stop you because the only way that you get better is by working through that failure. Yeah, for sure. Or quote unquote failure. It isn't even always a failure. It's just a self-perceived. It's just more work. That's the thing. It's like you have to zoom out and look at the body of your own work as the work, you know? Yeah. And I think a lot of people look at stuff like art or writing where it's like, it's fun to think about doing it, but it is the, like, you need to finish this. If you want to write something, fucking finish it. Like you have to keep going, going and not like letting the quote unquote writer's block, which is not real. Um, I think it's a, it's a somewhat legitimate feeling, but treating it as a tangible thing just stops you. It's like you push through, get, Mm -hmm. get the beats down, like do it. It can suck ass. That's what editing is for. Like that's the whole thing. I'll be much more impressed by a mediocre finished product than a perfect, undone, finished thing. Nobody wants to do the work to finish the thing. They just want it to be done. Starting is hard, but finishing is 10 times harder. The the other thing about finished products is it's so easy to be like, well, that was fine. And then, you know, you hear all these things about like these, these projects that, I don't know, you know, they're not the greatest, but they were so meaningful to a bunch of people for whatever reason. Right. Yeah. It's easy to get down on yourself or a project and just be like, okay, well, that album or whatever is done. Let's move it on. And yeah. then you hear all these stories about, you know, someone talks to an actor or whoever, you know, 10 years after the thing came out and they were like, this is my favorite thing in the entire world. And you're like, that, that thing, really? Oh, uh, you know, internally. But it, it, I, I think we're all bad judges of what people are coming to our stuff with because you can't know that stuff. And it's also like what matters more to you as a creator, that a thing meets your standards of how good you want something to be or the impact that it has on other people's lives. And like, I'm sure most people float around somewhere in the middle, like they're not mutually exclusive things, but in terms of like, especially if you struggle with any sort of imposter syndrome or self-loathing or whatever, like the idea of emotionally accepting that you had an impact on somebody is a lot harder than being able to look at something and be like, okay, this is done. It's to a certain standard, whatever. I think it becomes really easy. And we talked about this in the last episode of being so critical of yourself that you just straight up don't believe people who say that it is good. Um, Yes. Because like, you're just like, oh, well, and there's like an inherent narcissism in that where you're like, well, I know better than you that this is not good. Um, (laughs) 
<laughs> which is such a wild yes, place to well be. Well said. Well said. It's like you're lying to me. <laughs> I'm curious for both of you. I wonder if you have an answer to this. Is there some piece of culture, art, m- music, movies, whatever that you can point to in your own lives where it's not the greatest thing in the world? You know, it's maybe it wasn't very popular, whatever, but it was really meaningful and special to you at a given time in your life. So, are there any obvious examples? either of you can think of? I think my, my brain immediately hops to the, A, The Strangers, which is just like one of the best home invasion movies. Um, you know, wasn't super popular. Uh, I talk to people who haven't heard of it or like I'll show it to people and they'll be like, ah, it's boring. And then two weeks later, I get the text of like, fuck you for what? I, just, I feel so uncomfortable in my own home now. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, but especially the sequel to it, which I... I'm so fixated on that movie for some fucking reason. It's it's so simple. It's a rehash of slashers and imagery from other slashers. It's very like each character is kind of an archetype. And I would think that I wouldn't like that movie, but it it is one of the most like creatively inspiring horror movies to me because it just commits to being fun, um, which I, I think a lot of like the difference between a good horror movie for me and a bad horror movie is it can be bad, but if it's fun, it's good. And I think that applies to a lot of other things too, because like horror is a, a fun time. There's so much shit that you can do with it. Mm-hmm. And like, if the creators and crew are having a good time and love it, like that's important. That's good art. I feel the same about the Poughkeepsie tapes, which is also like, I recently watched the stuff on the, I think I, I've spoken about these things a billion times, but it, it is obviously it has had an impact on me of just like two brothers who made a comedy and they're like, how do we make a horror movie with the smallest budget possible that looks like the biggest budget possible. And they're like, okay, we'll do a mockumentary about a serial killer who filmed the crimes. And like, (laughs) it's so effective, so like economical about what it does, but it's still silly and fun and just goes for it. And like, that's sort of an ethos that I really, 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 really appreciate. Mm. Wait, what were the parameters of the question? What was that? What was the, what's the thing that most people would kind of just pass by or whatever piece of art uh, however you want to define that, that was meaningful to you. Oh my gosh. I mean, I could talk about the entire drum corps initiative. <laughs> so drum corps is basically marching band on crack. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it is a bunch of kids marching around on a football field, but the level of musicianship and the precision and specifically human effort in concert is so at its most acute. And it's, incredible. And you can't call it an industry. It's more like a happening. It's like America's best kept secret. Mm-hmm. I was in marching band. I was center snare and... Oh, wow. Really? Yeah. I thought I was going to be a percussion performance major in college and then switched my focus to theater performance very, very, very late. But... You know, I took marching band very seriously. My mother's like the president of the band boosters in grade school, I I think. I don't know, I have to ask her if that's right or not. It was just like, she has been such a supporter of the arts and has, um, you know, even when, you know, we lost our like music teacher in my public school, she came in and taught the class and they were like, lady, you can't just teach your daughter's class. You know, you have to teach all the kids. It's like not fair. (laughs) So she just took all of the instruments from her house and moved it into the school and just like made a little... You know, I don't even, I don't know how long she did it, but you know, this is just who my mother is, which is why like, I'm very much the product of her support of the arts, you know? Wow. Um, or like her line in the sand that they should be respected. You know, she 
made the flags, meaning she like sewed the flags for the <laughs> for the um, color guard for my high school. Wow. Color guard. My sister was in the color guard before I got to high school. And, you know, it was like we took band very seriously. And uh, even like my fashion sense now, if I point to any of the outfits I've ever worn in any moment of fashion, it's the ones that I find to be the dopest or like the ones I feel the sexiest in are like, girl, that looks like a band uniform, you know? (laughs) (laughs) So um, drum corps is just something that most people don't know about or they might just dismiss because it's like, oh, those band nerds. Fuck yeah, they're band nerds, you know? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. The human effort is uh, really the thing that I'm the most motivated by. And in general, it's like, we're going to do this impossible thing in unison. Here we go. I I was also... A marching band. Excuse me, what did you play? Tell me everything. Uh, it's a little something called the sousaphone. Oh, and oh good <laughs> God. Okay. A couple of caveats to this. In high school, I played, I started as a sax player, you know, when I was 10 and ended up playing Barry sax pretty much all the time uh, because we didn't have low brass players. And I was like, I'm tired of fucking playing these tuba parts on saxophone. I'll just learn the tuba. So I learned the tuba and then ended up using it almost exclusively in a symphony in college and for marching band. And we had these, have you seen the fiberglass sousaphones? Of course. Do you, do you know what they, yeah, right? Yes. Uh, so I played this giant white fiberglass sousaphone in marching band, but I went to Williams College and the marching band there is a, uh, a fake marching band because <laughs> it doesn't play and move at the same time. So we do the scramble. I mean, it was basically a joke, like on purpose, but... I mean, only on purpose because we weren't good enough to do it not on purpose. (laughs) So we would scramble into formation and play. Like the full name of the band was the Williams College Mucho Masha Muko Marching Band. And because the cows are the, I think I said Muko, but I meant Muko. Cows are like the college mascot or whatever. It was a bunch of band nerds who didn't have the, I don't want to say ability because there were some really great musicians in the band, but we didn't have the leadership or the drive to do the kind of thing that you did, Jeanine, which is like a legit marching band. Oh, well, no, my high school marching band wasn't amazing, but drum corps is like, and drum corps international, the bands that are competing in that echelon, um, anyone Mm -hmm. who's going to the championships. They're so incredible that it's, you know. And my last music video is has a 50-person drum corps in it. Um, I worked with the the Jersey Surf. Oh, sweet. If people want to look up that music video, what's it called? It's called Don't Look Down. I think it's like hashtag just add drum corps or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> and also for anybody who's interested in Googling what drum corps is, it's not C-O-R-E, it's C-O-R-P-S. Yes, right? thank you. Yes, good. I also had never seen a sousaphone before and then I Googled fiberglass sousaphone because I've just, this is a lot of things that I've never heard of. Uh, that looks dope as fuck. They're gorgeous. future shit. Janina, what is your take on the movie Drumline? I used to hate it. Uh-huh. I used to have like a little sort of contrarian attitude about it because I was like, this is not drum corps. So um, this is like about, this is like Southern college marching yep. band. This is different than drum corps, which now I'm just like, oh God, this, you're going to be a gatekeeper about what kind <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> of marching band is go- like, oh, so embarrassing. But then Dallas, who it's like based on his life, became a buddy and that the, that's the character that Nick Cannon plays. Right, right, right. So funny. I saw the movie in the theaters and haven't seen it since. The short version is uh, I used to hate it and have a big attitude about it because like everybody's really messy player in it and it was like the only representation that marching bands had so I was very angry that that was all we had, right? Right, right. Um, 
And then Dallas Austin, the producer who is the central character, was like based on his life, became a friend. And I was like, it's actually really cool that you got to do that, right? Yeah. <laughs> and then, but that was 10 years after it came out that I even became friends with him. And then um, now it plays after RuPaul's Drag Race <laughs> sometimes. Oh, really? Oh, <laughs> like, it'll be awesome. like one of the movies that, they, you know, there's always like, you know, so Drag Race is on VH1. It's like an hour and a half to two hours of, of drag. And then there's like always some random movie that plays after it. And it's things like, um, you know, like Baby Reese in uh, Legally Blonde or, right. you know, or like Drumline. These are the kind of movies that play. So like early 2000s kind of stuff. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And now I'm just delighted by it. Cool. I think it's a, I, I haven't seen it in years. I remember it being a really fun, like compelling, interesting movie. Yeah. Well, you know what's funny is like, and, and this goes back to the perfectionism thing, right? So I was obviously a perfectionist. You have to be when you are talking about an art form that is about precision. But now I have such a zoomed out perspective that I'm so happy that anybody would be attracted to marching band in general, mm -hmm. that anything that is accessible is exciting to me. You know, yeah. it's not like take, stop the gatekeeping, make this as accessible to anyone as possible. And then you can grow the sport, you know? Yes. So that becomes so much more of a, um, the point to me that I, I just sort of like, I just want everybody to enjoy it as opposed to it being perfect. It's like, who totally. cares? Just enjoy I'm it. I'm such a <laughs> sucker too for big, like climactic musical numbers. You know, yes. like I just watched Eurovision last night and I cried at the last song. I just watched Eurovision last night and <laughs> this is precious. I, that last song was absolutely the high point of oh. the movie for sure. Hold on. You know what? I was actually, it's funny you should say that. So one of my friends is a, in, I think he was like a, the executive producer of the music and I, oh, really? he, and I texted him last night. Hold on, let's ask him, um, did you, this is exciting. Who wrote this last song? Who wrote? That last song. Question this is the one where she sings in hometown, Icelandic. In Icelandic. Right? Oh, yeah. fully cried. Fully cried. It's like scientifically made. It was a great number. Scientifically, perfectly produced, nostalgia song. Yep. Ugh, it's so hard to do. You know, I'm not like a Eurovision super fan. The only person I recognized from that world was Conchito Verst. Everyone else, I was like, that's got to be some Eurovision person. That's got to be some Eurovision yep. person. You could tell when they when they launch into the a song along. Yes, exactly. Uh -huh. Okay, yes. he fucking wrote it. I knew he did. Nice. God that's damn awesome. it. Me and two guys in my camp, Richard and Fat Max. God damn you. My wife and I were watching it together and we were just saying, you know, like all these Will Ferrell comedies kind of have the same formula. You know, it's a little too much of the same. You can see everything coming a mile away. But when the formula works, it works. And that climax, it worked so great. It really did. It's like you saw the kiss coming and you knew what all the beats yep. are going to be. You know, but that's almost every story ever told, right? So you have for sure. two ways for setups to pay off, right? So you it either does the thing that you expected it to or you subvert. So if you are doing everything right and you are being as authentic to that story as you possibly can, even if it does the thing you think it would, it's still really satisfying. Yeah, and it was. And especially when it's a big musical number. Like, that's mm -hmm. always always going to get me. Oh, so I, I, I can't remember if I said this or I just thought about saying it. Especially these, these climactic musical numbers, and there's endless great ones, when they're instrumental, 
I'm like, thank fucking God. Yes, a big, <laughs> purely instrumental musical number. And the big one, so Drumline had a big one. Mm-hmm. The other one that comes to mind, and this movie has a bunch of like, wow, that's really fucked up issues, uh, is Whiplash, where that final mm, caravan yeah. performance is wildly great. I- impossible to actually play on drums, of course, but the the musicianship there I thought was pretty awesome in the arranging and the and the performance. Man, I haven't seen that movie in so long. I don't think I've seen it since high it's school. It's like obviously it's it's a pretty fucked up philosophy. Uh but some of the music in it rules. And you know, I I oh, played yeah, in big no, bands for years, 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 years. I mean, that was my major in college was jazz arranging and performance. And it's it's kind of what you were saying about marching band. It's just nice to see like this thing you love represented on the big screen, albeit in Whiplash, the main dude is a complete monster. Yeah, well, I mean, listen, I'm much more interested in in um, watching terrible people. That's just me. Yeah. But yeah, and no, I totally agree. There's, um, I really like the podcast Script Notes with John August mm-hmm. and uh, Craig Mazin. They can both be a little difficult to take sometimes, but it's a really fabulous podcast. And I think one of the few like writing resources that is actually like really legit just because it's so constructive and like experience-based and like, especially when they read through people's like submitted scripts and stuff. But there's a really awesome episode with Whiplash where they compare, you know, first draft of the script with the shooting script and like actually filmed and they talk about, you know, subtext and stuff that makes it work better. And like they go through the dinner scene in that movie with the family and like, I don't know. That's the kind of thing that I really love. It's incredible. Did we tell you this? So Stucco's sound team was nominated for a motion picture Sound Editors Award. Oh, wow. Cool. I don't even know what category we were in, but we're a short film that I shot in my house, okay? And we were up against Jurassic Park, something or the other. They made like a 30-minute thing and uh-huh. an episode of Barry. And like, just, there's no, we were like, we're not winning, but we're going. We are going to go. <laughs> so we got all gussied up and we got to celebrate with our sound team. Barry won. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Wait, which episode was it? I don't know. I'll have to find. I'll have to find. Actually, I can probably Google it. But when they won, Russo and I looked at each other and we're like, we're actually completely okay with this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's what they deserve. I Did you guys see Henry Winkler talking about how, like, we should get Gringlet for season four so we can shoot it at the same time as we shoot season three? And it's like, please, God. Oh, I no, I didn't. It's so bad. That's really smart. They need to get that greenlit now, so the so the so the writers' room can continue to just write right into it, though. Yeah, for sure. There are really great interviews with Bill Hader. I think it's maybe one of the NPR ones where they were talking about like we have this plot point. This is the one plot point that we need to have in this season, and we're going to work backwards to that. Oh shit! I won't talk about it because it's big time spoilers. If you're listening to this podcast and you haven't watched Barry, I am begging you. I'm begging you. It's such a good show. You must. You must. Henry Winkler. Can I just I just fucking love Henry Winkler. Every he reminds me of all my dad's relatives. Uh <laughs> like older Jewish guy and oh I, I love him so much. When I first moved here, one of my very early roommates was a bar mitzvah DJ and awesome. He was like, "Do you want to come be a dancer? I can pay you." And I was like, "Yes, thank you." You know. <laughs> So I went to be like a party dancer at this bar mitzvah and 
you know, I think I'd, I lived here for like less than a year still, you know, um, and Harry Winkler was there and he was, I think, maybe the first famous person I ever saw in real life. He was at the bar mitzvah. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, he was at the party. I think he even got on the mic. I mean, it was like they rented out a hangar. It was like that kind That's of level. Amazing. I wish I Whoa. knew who it was. It's probably some, you know, producer's kid or something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I made like a hundred whole dollars to dance the whole entire <laughs> night with a bunch of kids and like on the stage and just like be a dancer. Janina, was that your first or? Oh, no, no. To, yeah. <laughs> Where did you grow up? Joliet, but I didn't go to any growing up. You know, Indians and, and Jews are very similar in culture, I would say, meaning like the pillars of our culture. Oh, welcome to New Jersey. Yes, yes, <laughs> totally. That's absolutely the intersection because it's like family, education, and work ethic. Those yep. are like the three pillars of our respective cultures. So we're just very similar. It is amazing to me, by the way, we put these episodes up and people are like, finally, another really long podcast. And ooh, I do like, I have too many way too long podcasts that I feel like I have to listen to because I want to listen to and I'm a completist mm. uh, every week. So when I see those, you know, like the two and a half hour Mark Merritt episode with William Friedkin. I'm like, oh, I guess I got to do it. William you know. Friedkin was on? <laughs> uh, yeah, you should listen to that. Like, Oh, but I can't fucking stand Mark Merritt. He talks to some really great people. I know. Yeah, the I've Friedkin tried. one is like crazy long. I think it's approaching three hours. It's, it's wild. And we've talked about this before. You're a short podcast guy and I want yes. the longest podcast possible. <laughs> oh, no, I just discovered this new one. Do you guys know Josh Gombelman? Do you know him? No. No. He, he's a stand-up. Uh, I think he's a writer too. Um, and he has this new podcast. They're only on episode like six or seven or something like that called Make My Day. And it is a game show with one contestant. So they always win. And it is just about like positivity. And jo Josh is like the, I don't know him personally, but I, I know his work. And he's just like this ray of sunshine. And at the end of the day, whoever wins, which is to say, whoever's the guest that week, uh, <laughs> they donate $100 to charity of the guest choice. Hmm. And it's, it, it's a game show. It's basically an improv game kind of thing, but it's really, really fun. Uh, and he's had some good people on. So, but yeah, every week it's reliably like 25 to 30 minutes. It's the best. I'm actually looking right now for a great podcast series that um, is not conversation, but is sort of investigative journalism, except not true crime. And that is, mm. I'd like to give you what I'm loving is uh, Rabbit Hole, which is a New York Times one. I think oh, it's wow. eight episodes that are about half hour each, half hour or less. Truly fantastic and is really about how the internet can radicalize people. Mm. Ooh. I mean, it's really fantastic. Um, and it's not like hard hitting or anything like yeah, that. Yeah. It's just really thoughtful. And... Um, it's hard to find pieces like that that are more than one episode. Like there's, of course, like the invisibilia of it all, you know, the NPR show. Yes. But those are one-offs. I really do want something that is a series, but it's very hard to find ones that aren't true crime. All right. Uh, here's, here's my recommendation. And actually, this is perfect because I recommended this in the episode whose audio we lost entirely. And so... Uh, that that was lost, but I just listened to this. It's called uh, My Year in Mensa by Jamie Loftus. So she is a comedian writer type and basically as a journalistic stunt, 
um, she took a test to get into Mensa and got into Mensa and then wrote an article about it. <laughs> I can't remember the exact title, but it was something like, well, I guess they let dumb sluts into Mensa now. And, <laughs> and, and so that was like one thing she just did, but then she got into it and joined the secret Mensa Facebook group, which ended up being very alt-righty and it, it found this whole undercurrent of monstrosity in Mensa. I'm so excited. Wait, what is it called? It's called My Year. I think it's in, but it might be of My Mensa. My Year in Mensa. Okay, I'm looking it up. I'm looking By up. Jamie Loftus, L-O-F-T-U-S. And it's four episodes. They're about an hour each. Real easy. And she's very funny. And I just, I loved it. It's really interesting. It's like, you know, it, it's not quite investigative journalism. It's more like memoir. Sharing experience of one specific thing. No, I'm super into it. Yeah, I, it I love great. that. It's interesting to hear the, that it was alt-righty, in, um, yes. which I can kind of see, actually, the more I think about it. But people who are attracted to Mensa clearly like feeling smart or being told that they are smart. To voluntarily take a test, the whole point of which is to prove that you're smart, you got to like feeling smart. It reminds me of, you know, the Myers-Briggs test, which is not useful. But but it's interesting. I mean, that that's why astrology is the thing. It's just everybody wants to be told shit about themselves. Yeah. But like, I've always tested as an INTJ, which if you look up stuff about INTJs, their entire like dating sites and forum communities that are based around it, which like the whole archetype of that one is basically like evil genius. Like <laughs> you're smart and you don't have feelings. Like, and that's such a people who overly identify with that. Can I tell you something, Layton? Brian? I am also an INTJ. Really? I am so yes. not surprised by this. This Although, makes sense. when I took it, which was a long time ago, I was a lot more I than I am now. So mm, I feel yeah. like if I took it now, I would be an ENTJ. But my last documented Myers-Briggs, which was when I was, I don't know, literally like 15 or something, INTJ all the way. This is so interesting. You know, I don't even remember what I am in the Myers-Briggs world. I know that I vacillate between the I and the E, which happens a lot for people. Yep. I think I just sort of erased whatever my letters were the second that I re I found out that it was outdated. I was like, oh, this is not a real thing. Great. Okay. And yeah. then um, around 2006, I heard about something called kingdomality. Uh, my my then boyfriend found it and it was um, he was like building his company. So it was like great in terms of how to build the perfect team. But essentially, Myers-Briggs is missing the priority factor of things. So Kingdomality took took some of Myers-Briggs and then added that, which is a little bit more of like what makes you tick and what you need and what you're motivated by, specifically what you're motivated by, right? When you prioritize things. Mm -hmm. And it's called Kingdomality because it basically, in the 16 personality types, it skinned it Almost like, okay, this is going to be the analogy is a medieval kingdom. And in this kingdom, there are 16 types of people. One is a benevolent ruler. One is a white knight. One is a black knight. One is a engineer. One is a discoverer, etc. And the idea is that if you create a team of people who have all of these personalities and it's balanced, then you will have a balanced, working, perfectly built machine with well-oiled cogs, right? That's the idea. Mm -hmm. And there's mm -hmm. some sort of like 
story that I feel like I remember that was told at the time that was like DARPA's using this system. They don't call it kingdomality, obviously, but they are using this test, like a more thorough version of this test, to build their perfect teams before they, you know, greenlight a project with $250 million. So yeah, listen, as we learn more in the world of psychology, these tests will become better and better. But then like assigning yourself a label after complaining that we all hate being labeled is kind of hilarious. <laughs> yeah. But we do, it is in human nature to want to do that to ourselves. To want to label things, yes. It's, it's, and it's also like wanting to feel seen. I feel like the one useful application for it that I actually go back to because there's like a good website that has a pretty comprehensive breakdown of it is like writing a character that you're stuck on and just like taking the test in character and just kind of seeing if it hands you any stuff that makes sense or just like, oh, okay, so what would they do in this scenario? Like judging, perceiving, whatever. Um, I find that that's really useful. Yeah, it's a great idea. How, how unfortunate for DARPA that the word derp became a thing. Like, I, I wonder I wonder if they're upset about that. I don't think they care. Probably not. They're too busy running around in robotic exoskeletons and stuff. Yes, and there's basically like, shh, don't look this way. Have you listened to the Ono, Ross, and Carrie series on on Scientology? No, but I want to. I'm very interested. The Scientology one is really good. I I don't really like the show. Like, I'm I'm not into them as hosts, but the Scientology one is really, really interesting because it's just seeing how far they can get without being found out. Oh, God. It's incredible. Also, they they do one with Flat Earthers, and then... Oh. Oh, you must. And then I watched the documentary, which is on Netflix, I believe, Mm -hmm. um, which I love, after. With the the Flat Earth documentary? Yes, Flat Earthers documentary. Behind the Curve. Behind the curve. Behind the curve. They went to the experiment that is at the end of the documentary. So it's all leading up to this experiment that they run. Mm -hmm. And I was like, oh my God, I know all about this. I listened to them. (laughs) They experienced going to this. So it felt very cool to sort of uh, have it unravel and feel like I knew anything about. That's awesome. We just did What's Poppin'. Mm Mm-hmm. So that's the segment that we normally do where we'll be like, hey, here's what's popping. And then we each recommend like one pop culture thing, but we just kind of did it on accident. Great. So cool. Done. Check that off. Jarek, Jarek, play the what's popping theme backwards <laughs> now. <laughs> Layden, do you want to introduce our final segment? Yeah, sure. So our final segment is called Peaches and Lemons, which is a thing that I stole from my family, where basically it's an exercise in gratitude where we all go around. You share one lemon, which is a thing that's kind of a bummer, uh, just to acknowledge like, hey, here's the thing that's bad, but also here are things that are good. And so the three peaches are things that you're excited about or grateful for or looking forward to. Um, and they can be as wide and sweeping and deep as possible, or they can just be like small, petty stuff, because I think that is important. So we will each go around and each share three peaches and no lemon because everything lemon, everything is a lemon. I'm happy to go. My first peach is this morning, one of Audrey's uh, now former kindergarten classmates, because the school year is over, had a little drive-by birthday. And so we went to, drove to Burbank, stopped in front of this kid's house. He's turning seven and had a little chat with some parents and, uh, 
Audrey, who is six and very much feeling the effects of not being able to brain dump her life on unsuspecting people, spent the entire time screaming uh, out the car about all the fun stuff that had happened to her uh, in, a, in a very cute and like, thank God, real people kind of way. It, it, was, it was really fun. And uh, the parents handed us a little cupcake in a box and we drove away. Mm. It was just nice to see another kid and another family. Mm. Yeah. Audrey's big event, by the way, is that we downloaded the Switch game. I think it's called Jump Rope Challenge. Have you seen this? <laughs> no. It's a free game. And all it does is measure how many times you can jump up and down. And <laughs> we downloaded it yesterday. She jumped up and down 500 times. Oh, my gosh. And then had her like woke up this morning. It was like my leg, my leg. And it took a while for us to realize that it was the first time she'd ever had a sore muscle. Oh. And she like went for it. The <laughs> jumping was insane because she's like screaming the whole time, like jumping up and down with the Joy-Cons going, ah, and <laughs> you can see the number click up. And so, yeah, my, my kid had her first, first sore muscles. Uh, Next, uh, Peach, is, uh, I, I haven't read it yet, but we got, uh, there's this amazing kids graphic novel called The Cardboard, King, Cardboard Kingdom. Does either of you know this? I feel like I've heard of that. What is that? It's by this guy, Chad Sell, who's, uh, I don't know what his other credits are, but it's one of these things where the book is just, it's, it's basically a little neighborhood of kids that creates their own like kind of fantasy world and they all have different roles. And the book is just, it is like one of the most delightfully inclusive things I've ever read. There's different family structures, different ethnicities, different, every, it's just like this total mishmash of, of people. And it, it, it's a really wonderful book. It's it, one author and then a bunch of artists. And his first new book in a long time, we got it today. It's called Doodleville. And hmm. I am so excited. I don't even really know the plot. It's some kid that draws and maybe the drawings come to life or something. Not quite sure. Uh, but this has been, we've been obsessed with this book with Audrey for a couple of years now. And it's like that, the, the thing by the author you really like, finally it's out. And so we got that, uh, in an Amazon delivery today. So it's really exciting. Hell yeah. And actually my third peach, I didn't even think when I wrote these down, uh, but it's kind of related to that. I have been reading a ton with, uh, with Audrey recently, like we're starting to do some chapter books and it's, it's really nice every morning. Like occasionally I, I was, we lucked into a kid that sleeps late. So we have to wake her up every morning to make sure she goes to bed before like 10 o'clock every night. So <laughs> I usually wake her up around 8, 8 a.m. And what we've done for the last few mornings is just, I wake her up in bed and we sit there and we read books for like 45 minutes oh. and it's been the best, you know, we'll pause so she can talk about whatever feelings she's having and tell little stories about the characters and stuff. And it's just this really delightful time with this person I love. Those are all wonderful peaches. Thank you. Uh, Leighton, what you got? First one is yesterday I got some coffee cake, but it was like the best coffee cake I've ever had. Oh, it was like a God. legitimate cake. Nice. It wasn't like a lo loaf or anything, but it was covered. I, this bakery that I go to all the time um, and probably go to too much. I've been so tempted by it in the little glass thing because it's completely covered with that like honeycomb candy. Uh-huh. Um, just got a big fat slice of that that's covered in that perfectly like crunchy brown sugar. Oh. It was so good. Um, so that was a, that was a real treat. My second peach is, uh, I've been really looking forward to this record because Janine and I haven't spoken to you in like fucking forever. Uh, and this <laughs> has been so like great. such a good 
conversation. So I really appreciate it. Um, and then my third peach is I, I've been just, you know, being at home, I've been trying to like optimize my desk setup. I think this was maybe one of my peaches last week, but I put up some shelves and it's very exciting. And I moved some furniture around. I love moving furniture around. It's fun. I mean, my place is disgusting. And so instead of cleaning, I move things around. So, you know, small, small victories, I guess. <laughs> there are few things in life more low stakes, exciting than additional storage space. Oh my God, it's amazing. I love coming up with best ways. You know, everything should have a home. Those are my peaches. Uh, Janina, what about you? Well, um, this morning I got an email from South by Southwest because we we won this award and, and they were like, where do you want us to send your award? And I had it sent to Russo because I, I don't know, I just like thought he might sort of love having it, you know? Um, yeah. And then, but I was also like, we're only going to get one then. I guess I don't got it, but we'll share it maybe. And I don't know. I like had that thought. And then this morning they said they'll be sending another form where you can buy another one. <laughs> and I was <laughs> nice. like, and I was like, sweet, because that means I can buy two. I can buy one for myself and I can buy one for our creature effects artist. Hey. Yeah. I mean, like we literally got an award for creature design and he really, really, really deserves it because he did not get paid what <laughs> he should have had for making that beautiful thing and a tongue, you know? So, yeah, um, of course, the tongue. So I will not be linking him to this because I want it to be a surprise that I will be getting to send him an official South by plaque and that's exciting. Um, and, uh, my, the one that I had was that uh, it hasn't been announced yet, but Russo and I are doing a thing called We Want to Know More. And all of the social handles were available. So you can follow oh, nice. us on <laughs> Amazing. It. You know how that is. It's like, oh, cool. We have an idea. We'll never get the name. Yes. So I managed to buy the URL and um, get it on Twitter and Instagram, which was like a miracle. So you can actually find us at We Want to Know More. And I feel that's like... That's awesome. Holy cow! You know, at this point, everything's <laughs> just been taken. So that's pretty cool. And then the third one is that Anthony Carboni, our darling mutual friend, is moving soon. And what? this past week, he's just like going to move into another apartment. Yeah. Cool. And I was like, come be my neighbor. And he was like, well, actually. And then I happened to have to drive somewhere to drop something off. So I like took this video as I was driving home. I was like, okay, here's this apartment complex on the left. This one looks fancy. This one looks fancy. Now we're going to turn. This is my block. This one doesn't look as fancy, but it seems like it's it's good. And I like did this little <laughs> video. So you're a realtor, briefly. Yeah, so he's going to totally <laughs> move to my neighborhood. He's going to be my neighbor. And isn't that great? That's awesome. Oh, God, that's so fucking awesome. That's great. Oh, when we're able to be around physically, let's do a movie night yes. with Anthony and Russo and Vernon. That would be great. Yes, please. Janina, this was awesome. Thank you so much for taking all this time to, to, to be course. with us on this thing. It's really a delight to have you. I'm so glad you guys are doing this. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad too. Uh, where can people find you on socials and such? At Janina, J-A-N-I-N-A. Also, everybody go watch Stucco. There is one thing I wanted to ask that that reminds me of. I did look at you on Wikipedia and there in your thing there, it says you were the first actress on Twitter. Oh yeah, isn't that weird? How do you know? What was this? Is there a story? How does it happen? Like, <laughs> Yeah, it's a totally weird story. You know, like generally the short version is like, someone had to be, it just happened to be me. Right. Um, 
And then the longer version is that I was a guest on this trip to Richard Branson's private island called Necker Island. And it was one of these like strange, infamous in the circle kind of trips. And this was in 2006. Whenever I signed up, that's when the trip was. <laughs> and, uh, uh-huh. and the word new media was around, but social media wasn't around yet. Yeah, yeah. And on the trip was just a bunch of sort of dot-commers, if you will. There's like a whole tech mm-hmm. side of my life that not nobody really knows about. But the point is, Chris Saka, who is now a billionaire, but at the time was head of special initiatives at Google, was on this trip and he was talking about this thing called Twitter. And it wasn't even incorporated yet. It had The four founders were running it under an LLC called Obvious Corp. And he was talking about it. This is before smartphones. So the way that you would tweet something was by texting 40404 and then just... I remember that, yeah. Yeah. And then that's how you would get your tweet out. And I was like already working. And um, I just shot my first series, The L Word. And I was like, well, yeah, I would love to be able to talk to... It's basically like an opt-in mailing list where you had... That's how I saw it in my head. I was like, performers will like this because you get to basically be right in the pocket of your audience. That's kind of how I saw it. Like, oh, this is going to go. This is going to really work because we will have direct access to anybody who signs up to get our feed, essentially. Yeah. And so I got it. And I was like, so that's one side of it. And then personal side of it is that I do too many things in, in one day. And I don't even retain the stuff that I'm doing, but I have a really cool life and I would love to be able to remember some of the cool things. So microblogging, <laughs> right? Yeah. Mm. So you could look back at it and just be like, oh yeah, I guess I did that. Cool. Yeah. One sentence, microblogging is how I saw it. So in those two different things, I was like, I can use it for both of these things, right? So I just, so I signed up on the, you know, Branson's desktop computer right there on the island. Amazing. <laughs> well, great. Janina, thank you so, so, so much. Um, of let's course. Talk soon. Everybody listening. Be well, take care of yourselves. Hope you enjoyed this episode. Be kind to yourselves, please. This is the end of the podcast. We're done. Bye. Goodbye. Late Night is produced by Brian Wecht, Leighton Gray, and Jarek Centeno. Follow us on Twitter at Leighton Night, on Instagram at Leighton underscore night, or email us at LeightonNight at gmail.com. 